Good afternoon to our viewers in Germany and good morning to our viewers in the United States. I'm Steve Sokol, the president of the American Council on Germany, and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's discussion. While it was widely anticipated, the Russian withdrawal from Kherson undeniably was a huge setback for Moscow. The retreat from Kherson has been seen as a mil military necessity brought about by the success of Ukraine's counteroffensive. To talk about the latest chapter in the war in Ukraine and what it might mean, I'm joined by German journalist and author Katja Gloger and by young leader alumnus Andrew Weiss. He's the James Family Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Katja, herzlich willkommen, and Andrew, welcome. It's great to see you both. Thank you for having us. And thanks for using the word young in a sentence about <laughs> See, this is good. This is good. And leader. And leader. <laughs> <laughs> these, are, these are all important words, right? Um, I also want to point out that today's discussion is part of the series In Focus, Russia's War in Ukraine, which is organized um, by the ACG together with the Tennessee World Affairs Council. And I want to thank the Tennessee World Affairs Council for partnering on today's event. Um, Katya and Andrew, I thought we could start by talking about what Russia's withdrawal from Kherson means for the war in Ukraine. This is the third big retreat since the offensive began after Kiev and Kharkiv. Um, and with this withdrawal, Russia seems to be admitting a, a battlefield defeat and has conceded that it cannot maintain um, occupation of or control of Kherson. Does this mean that Russia is losing the war? I mean, if I start with a thought and first with many thanks to you, the American Council in Germany and the Tennessee World Affairs Council for having us today and talking um, about a war in the middle of Europe. Um, Certainly, the retreat from Kherson is a big military defeat for the Russian army, and it's a personal defeat, you might say, um, also for Russian President Putin, who um, apparently had given the order a couple of months ago to uh, hold Kherson at almost any cost um, possible. So while this is an important victory for Ukraine, also strategically, um, it does not mean that the war is over, not at all. Um, still, Russia, Russian troops um, are uh, controlling uh, about 15% um, of Ukraine's territory, um, uh, including Crimea. So, Steve, I'm happy to jump in here. Yeah, yeah, please. Great please. to see both you and Katya. And, and this is a very fast-moving situation. Um, I'm not a military analyst, so I don't want to uh, provide you a kind of cut-and-dry answer to your question. Um, the cost of this war is immense, and Ukraine has suffered enormously and disproportionately. Um, whether they are going to uh, be able to sustain the momentum that we've seen so dramatically since the counteroffensive began at the end of August is the big question right now. And we're chasing winter. So when you look at where the long line of contact is, which stretches for hundreds um, of kilometers from one part of Ukraine down to uh, the border with Crimea, it is going to be very challenging for the Ukrainians to get the Russians out of their country overnight. This is a long-term challenge that's going to be fought for and very costly by the people of Ukraine. And I have no doubt that they're going to keep going and that they're going to keep pushing at what cost is un, is really hard to gather at this point. And I, you know, I look at the uh, collapse of Russia's uh, offensive to seize Kyiv in the first months of the war, uh, first weeks and months of the war, then the failure of the strategy to seize the Donbass, which was plan B, 
and then the very costly uh, effort by the Russians to hold on to the city of Kherson and the parts of what are the, called the right bank, but essentially west of the Dnieper. All of this has been extremely costly for the Russians in terms of morale, in terms of international reputation, and blood and treasure. So it has also been very costly for the Ukrainians. And I just would remind folks that we had seen the campaign um, for seizing the right bank get bogged down. Um, and it was much more of a slog than what happened in Kharkiv, where basically the Ukrainians were pushing on an open door because the Russian lines were so thin. But this has been very costly. And the ability to now go over the river physically and seize more territory will be harder just because the Russian positions are more dug in. Some of them, uh, depending on how far you push into uh, the, the land bridge, will be in more populated areas. The areas where the land is uh, is sort of flat and the terrain is harder to dig into, the Ukrainians may be able to make gains, but, but it's really an unpredictable and somewhat fluid uh, situation as winter arrives. This this war um, appears to to or has all the prerequisites it seems to to sort of drag on um, and as you said there are a lot of there's a lot of uncertainty um, about how this this might um, pr proceed and how it might continue. One of our viewers is curious how long you think the war might last um, and obviously that's a, a tough question to answer. But how how long and protracted do you think it will be? I'm not sure because everything about this war has been so uh, contrary to expectations and experts like me have just been, you know, at every turn, I think, making assumptions that that are now, you know, upended by developments in pretty short order. So if you'd asked me a couple of weeks ago, how hard would uh, it be to seize Kherson, it was looking quite hard. And then at some point, the Russians have made a kind of rational decision that holding on to Kherson at any cost wasn't worth it. Um, the, you know, my, my general formula for this is that this war will drag on months, if not years, and that people's expectations of a rapid Ukrainian victory need to be very uh, carefully um, calibrated against the picture we see, which is of a Russia which is content to dig in, to wait out the West, and then to exact a horrible price on Ukraine and are currently right now in the process of destroying Ukraine's critical infrastructure to make the country as miserable as possible and to basically generate new outflows of, of, of uh, refugees and to prevent people in Ukraine from enjoying some sense of tranquility in everyday life. There certainly is the military situation, a very dynamic situation, as Andrew pointed out. Um, while we see, on the one hand, we see Hassan, so say, liberated. Um, we see for yesterday and today, at least, we see uh, more forceful um, Russian attacks um, in the Donbass, apparently to keep um, the line of contact, so the front line, um, stable for uh, the Russian army and to try and seize a couple of strategically important villages and smaller towns like Bakhmut, strategically very important. But we also have to see when it comes to the question how long might this war last, what we also have to look at is certainly the political fallout mm -hmm. of last month's um, development. Um, so Kherson um, sh shows um, to a certain extent how stuck the Russian president is now. He is stuck with his September 30th speech, his announcement um, made very public on Red Square in, um, in the evening of, of that day, incorporating meaning and that an annexation of those four oblasts, of those four Ukrainian regions into um, the Russian Federation. Uh, we remember him saying, we are together forever, underlining his uh, decisiveness um, to, to 
keep these territories as Russian um, territories. And now we see he cannot hold them, or at least he cannot hold important parts of them. So this um, might have very important political implications on his standing um, in Moscow. What about uh, the Russian elites? How will they react on this um, development? And does he have uh, uh, to double down even more than he did, um, or is this um, a situation, a development where finally some reason sets in and um, a certain willingness to negotiate seriously? So this thing is far from over. Yeah, Andrew, go ahead. No, I, I just wanted to, to add on to what Tachi just said. So far, the Russian elite have been willing to swallow every aspect of this war. They've swallowed the atrocities, they've swallowed the international isolation, and they've swallowed basically the unraveling of 30 plus years of entry into the global mainstream and allowed their country to become pariahs on the back of a criminal war and unspeakable atrocities. Um, all because Putin needs Ukraine back under Russia's wing, which is a, uh, a fanciful and probably unachievable goal. Um, so I haven't seen any fracturing of the Russian elite. I've seen people who don't like this leave the country <clears throat> or a very small handful of brave Russians speak out publicly. But from the, the Russian elite, I see silence and complicity for the most part. And it's a it's a really sad spectacle. So I don't I don't expect much pressure on Putin to stop. And I've yet to see anyone who really matters in the Russian political system say, I can't take it anymore. I'm out of here. You, Mr. Putin, are a criminal, and I don't want to besperch my name or my reputation by associating myself with your criminal war. Like there literally have been no major defections. There's mm -hmm. there's no one, there are no brave people in the Russian elite who have taken that approach. I see silence and acceptance. Let me maybe fold in. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Katya. Go ahead. Just one one thought. Um, the, uh, everything Andrew says is is um, to, to the point, absolutely. But as the situation changes so dramatically, as the costs of the of this war politically, economically, militarily, uh, geostrategically um, become higher and higher and higher, um, uh, th there might be so. Um, more resistance from the so-called business or pragmatic part of the uh, Russian elite looking ahead to a very important date, which is election day in 2024. <clears throat> um, whether, you know, they will try to convince um, Putin at a certain point, maybe not to continue. Um, this is not clear at the moment so far at least publicly, they have been silent or a couple of them who left the country and uh, and prefer life in their London um, townhouses. Um, he also, Putin also faces um, mounting pressure from the so-called pro-war camp um, in Russia. Uh, the even more hawkish people than Putin is. Um, we have them uh, heard speaking up, people like Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, um, um, people like Kadyrov, um, the head of the Chechen um, Republic. We have been reading and hearing Alexander Dugin, um, the prophet of the, you know, um, final fight between the East and the West, between Russia and uh, the United States speaking up yesterday and saying her son was the last, so say the last step, it ends here. We cannot afford to lose any more territory um, or we cannot risk any more defeat. We really have to start um, fighting back on a real, in a real war, as he puts it. So you see there is movements in Russia, in the political realm in Russia as well. 
So since since we're talking about what's going on in Russia and sort of the, the public sentiment there, um, we've gotten a couple of questions from viewers um, that relate to that. One of our viewers is curious whether there's anything that Russian citizens who are against the war can do to stop the war. Um, another viewer wants to know if there's any way of really truly knowing what the quote Russian elite think and whether they can sort of communicate in some way or other without fear of being arrested. Do either of you have any thoughts on, on sort of what's going on under the surface um, in, in the Russian public? Maybe Andrew, I take on the question about Russian um, citizens, what um, they can do. Um, Russian society is an atomized um, society. There is no real or strong civil society in a sense that might get organized to to speak up or even to protest against a very repressive regime. A regime, by the way, that is becoming more depressive, um, a repressive, <laughs> repressive by um, the day um, with martial laws in the so-called new territories, with so-called special regimes in Russian a region that gives the um, police and the secret police, the secret services, even more power. Um, so to speak up, to protest and to get organized is almost impossible um, in Russia today. Um, you see people protesting, so say, with their feet. Um, the latest numbers we have is that about 700,000 um, people left Russia or only to Georgia within the last month. Um, certainly many of them who wanted to escape a possible mobilization. Um, but uh, we see many hundreds of journalists that had to leave the country and now try to speak up um, from exile wherever they may be in the Baltic states, here in Berlin, um, trying to inform the public via telegram in their language. So, you know, you, you have these voices um, but so far, I would not see them as a real danger or threat to the Russian president and his system. On, on the fear issue, I believe that the level of fear is really high. And it's a regime that trades on demonstrating its ruthlessness and not having to do things in large numbers. So it's not China with its massive police apparatus. It's a place that uses one or two really sadistic examples to show people that you can be uh, confident that if you speak out or you confide in someone privately, that there's a, a cost to pay. And so the two or three sadistic examples that I, I, I think resonate the most are the uh, recent rape of a poet in custody. And then after he was raped by police, he went out publicly and talked about it. And so you only need to do something like that once, as horrible as it sounds, to send a message that you know nobody is safe and that there are no limits on what the authorities will do to you if you are, uh, are too audacious. Um, and then we have these mysterious deaths of people falling out of windows. Um, and you can imagine how anyone in a comfortable position in the corporate world or inside government knows that traders are not going to be uh, smiled upon and that there is no platform uh, from which you are immune from pressure. Um, and then we have the spectacle of these, these creatures of the regime, like uh, the ones Katya mentioned, the leader of Chechnya and the leader of this quasi-private uh, mercenary outfit. Um, so I'm talking about Ramzan Kadyrov and Yevgeny Prigozhin. In many ways, those are the jackals who are not there to put pressure on Putin. They're there to glorify that, that they're true believers in his wisdom. And they deserve more stuff and more budget and more acclaim for fighting in his name. So we see competition within 
different groups around the regime, some of which are state actors, some of which are quasi-state actors, but are deniably independent of the Kremlin, even though they actually aren't. But they want to be the heroes of this war. And it's some of which is um is is completely insane. I'm sorry to to be so uh so blunt, but you have a military operation in the city of Bakhmut, which or the town of Bakhmut, which Katya mentioned, that serves no strategic purpose. And Prigozhin is plowing in uh, convicts and others who have been recruited from various places of uh, Russian society um, to give him a win and to basically give the leader something he can feel proud of, even if the human cost is enormous. Let me add maybe one one point when it comes to um, the the Russian system, Russian elites. Um, an important pillar of stability of the system um, has always been that uh, Vladimir Putin, VVP, as they call him, or just he, as they call him, um, being on top. Um, makes the final decision. So he is the mediator between different interests. He is the uh, arbitrator between different uh, uh, interest groups. Um, but this all works only as long um, as his decisions uh, turn out to be right decisions mm -hmm. and not harming the system too much. Um, and this is where it gets, so to say, interesting um, with the events going on in Ukraine, but also with the predicted economical fallout of sanctions. Um, it might not play out this year, this winter, but over time, um, the effect of sanctions will um, be a big one also for um, the Russian um, elite. Um, so, so we might see, uh, and I'm very cautious here, but we might see a development where Putin's position as being really the one and only, um, as long as he wants to be the one and only, that this um, is not 100% clear um, anymore. So, so maybe related to that, you know, coming back to the the retreat from Harrison for for just a moment. I mean, it's obviously a, a big setback for for Russia, and I'm sort of curious as to how Moscow is is spinning it, if you will, domestically. Um, Putin himself has been silent um, on Harrison, um, and as as you said earlier, Katya, it's it's obviously a, a big setback for him personally after his. Um, September 30th speech. So how how is this being presented um, in Russia? Uh, oh, um, if, if I have just a, a couple of impressions. So the president is silent and visits a brain research center in Moscow, also kind of ironic. Um, he keeps the military stuff to his general Sudovikin. Um, who plays an important um, public uh, role. Uh, if you watch television, um, it's um, the spin is, the narrative is, this was a necessary situation um, and development because um, our generals, they care for the Russian soldiers. They want to spare the life of the Russian soldiers and the Russian um, army on the one hand. And the other narrative is people finally stop complaining, stop whining, um, go and fight and do your duty for the motherland and for the president. Um, so this is my impression from what I see and watch um, um, on television and read on Twitter and on the Telegram channel. Andrew. I'm, I'm probably the only discordant voice on some of these things because I don't ascribe a huge amount of importance to narratives or state television. A lot of this stuff is, is just execrable and unwatchable. It is filling up space and it is also um, a money-making operation for the people in charge of the propaganda apparatus. So they benefit from 
the more we talk about them and the more we benefit, I mean, and we distract ourselves from the actions and it's the actions that matter. It's not the way they talk about stuff because as a German uh, Green Party leader Habeck said, I think this was one of memorable quotes from the beginning of the war, the only thing that's predictable about Russia right now are the lies. And I, I think we give ourselves false comfort if we look at discordant notes or critical notes, or they don't even know what they're talking about on state television, and then thinking that that indicates something about the decision-making at the top. The decisions at the top are, and we just need to remind ourselves, to destroy Ukraine as a sovereign, independent nation, to promote regime change, to get rid of the Zelensky government, and to seize territory and bring Ukraine forcibly back into Russia's orbit. That's the goal. And there had been a, you know, some fallback positions that Putin and others have been pushing at every turn, which are to say, well, if we can't have those maximalist things, have let's have the Ukrainians agree to a ceasefire now, give us control over the, you know, parts or all of the regions that Russia has annexed or now uh, claims. And we'll we'll just we'll just kind of move on as if that that and there'll be sanctions relief or other rewards for Russia doing that. Um, and it's you know raises questions you know in my mind of would would anybody want to take that deal? Would anyone would anyone in Ukraine survive politically from taking that deal? I'm sure they wouldn't, given the atrocities and all of the bloodletting. And would anyone in the West be fooled into thinking that this is anything other than a pause while Russia regroups and gets ready for another round of seeking those maximalist objectives? Anyways, I, I know that's not the question about the media, but, but I think it's really important for us to stay focused on what the actual goals of Russian policy are and to reckon with them because they're pretty uncomfortable and they force us into doing things, we the West, that cost a lot of money and that are going to be enduring long-term security challenges that we'll all have to confront, just as we did, for example, during the Cold War, where it wasn't our choice to be in this uh, dynamic with the Soviet Union, but it was thrust upon us. Andrew, that's actually a, a really good segue, you know, thinking about Russia's orbit um, to, to bring in a, a question from one of our viewers who recently visited the Republic of Georgia. And he writes that while the government and Georgian, Georgian oligarchs have links to Moscow, do you think Putin's failure in Ukraine might lead countries like Georgia to seek closer ties to the West? And if they do, how should Europe and the United States respond? I don't know if either. Yeah, so Katya, why don't you go first, and then and then Andrew can weigh in. Sure. Just one one thought. Um, we've been seeing during the last weeks um, that, so say, Russian influence, Russian control um, over events, let's say, in Central Asia. Um, partly also in the Caucasus, Azerbaijan, the conflict, Azerbaijan, Armenia, um, that this um, influence and control has been fading away a little bit. Um, everybody was quite surprised by a very emotional speech of the Tajik president during the last um, um, Central Asia summit, um, where he um, openly complained um, in Putin's presence that Russia, that Putin should not play down these smaller countries like um, Tajikistan and, um, uh, and criticized the Russian president quite heavily. This is uh, unknown pictures. Um, uh, for for many many years, um, so there is a certain risk that the Russian influence as um, as as keeping stability, uh, to keeping stability in Central Asia and in the Caucasus is fading away, um, and this might open um, a door for other actors, for example, for the European Union when it comes to mediating conflict in Azerbaijan and Armenia. At least there has been more activity from the side of the European Union recently. All, all I can say is the uh, 
unbelievable drain on Russian resources and power that the war has created is opening up vacuums in and around its periphery. Mm -hmm. And those vacuums are not going to be filled by the Russian military, which has its hands full in Ukraine. And in fact, we've seen Russia, for example, move units away from the eastern uh, part of the country along the border with China. And because the border with China is so stable, they don't have to worry about the fact that that border is essentially unguarded. Um, in the Caucasus, the vacuums don't necessarily create happy situations. And we've already seen mm. uh, Azerbaijan launch more military attacks on its neighboring Armenia in the contested area of Nagorno-Karabakh that was seized by Armenia uh, back in the Gorbachev era. And the Russians, for you know, better part of the uh, the Putin era, have asserted that they're the security manager and that you know they'll be the the big shot in the neighborhood, and have tried to force the the countries that had emerged from the Soviet Union to rely on Russia as the security provider, and then to try to push other contestants, whether it's Europe or the United States or China, away from playing that role. And I, I think that's a very hard thing for the Russians to pull off at this point. And for the countries of the region, having looked at what's uh, happened in Ukraine, they are going to look for alternatives because they do not trust the Russians. And they are really worried about Russian land grabs or troublemaking in various respects. Um, and the question will be, is Europe up for filling any of these vacuums? If Europe's not up for it, will the United States be up for it? And if Europe and the United States are not up to it, where is the where is the next best offer? Um, I think in most cases, the next best offer will come from China. Um, but there are other regional powers. Turkey is, is prominent among them that will be filling some of these vacuums. To work on the Central Asia strategy, um, not only theoretically for the European Union, it might be a good and important idea for, <clears throat> for many, many reasons. Um, not that China fills in the void. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What about Moldova? How concerned are you about about which way Moldova might go? Very much concerned. Um, the government under a lot of pressure, especially because of energy prices. Moldova is a hundred percent dependent on Russian gas deliveries and I think a hundred percent dependent on um, the power stations producing electricity that are based on the other side of the river in mm -hmm. the Russian controlled uh, region um, of Moldova. Um, certainly worries uh, a lot of European uh, leaders who just, as you re remember, just gave um, the status of prob probable candidacy to the European Union. This is why von der Leyen paid a visit recently um, and why we uh, need to um, help at least financially um, so that they can buy um, um, resources uh, to to help to, to, to have their population um, uh, living at least in a warm living room in winter. So um, very delicate and difficult um, situation there. Andrew, um, you know, despite the fact that that Russia is is pulling back, um, we've seen the U.S. sort of nudging Kiev to to come up with some sort of compromise. Um, why do you why do you think that's the case? I haven't seen that, Steve. Okay. And the the thing which I think everyone needs to rely on is what Jake Sullivan said on his way, uh, I believe, to Cambodia. I can't remember where the the flight was, but it was released, I think, on Sunday morning. I've lost track of time. It was either Sunday or Saturday morning. Um, and there's a transcript, and in it, he repeats the familiar formulations about. It is, you know, for the Ukrainians to decide what kind of diplomatic uh, process they're going to engage in, and Russia's the aggressor, and this war could be over tomorrow if it was if the decision was taken to move Russian forces out of Ukraine, and such a move is long overdue. So I, I believe that the problem facing everyone is 
that that's not really getting as much attention and frankly should get more attention is not talking about talking. Um, chasing after Moscow right now is a, is kind of a pointless exercise given that the Russians have never shown good faith in any negotiation over Ukraine. The, the real challenge is escalation that the administration has to be worried about. And I think that underlines some of the, the comments that people like General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, um, and others have made in recent weeks. And then we see again, uh, the, the more recent news headline, which is this morning's announcement that the CIA director, uh, Bill Burns, is meeting in Ankara, has met in Ankara today with the head of the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, uh, the SVR, to talk about uh, the danger of, of Russia using nuclear weapons in Ukraine, as well as the fate of Americans who are being held hostage in Russia, like Brittany Griner. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, related I have to, to that, say, yeah, yeah, go uh, ahead, go ahead, Katya. <laughs> Sorry, um, just to compliment um, um, this time uh, for um, the U.S. administration, um, my feeling is that so far um, they managed really to keep this very delicate balance on the one hand, um, helping that Ukraine defends um, her sovereignty and her territory, um, helping with lots and more and more also sophisticated weapons, but also on, on the, at the same time um, doing everything in order to um, keep the escalation risk as low as possible. It's a very fine line um, that the um, administration uh, walks and um, so far it um, worked out. But now with the Ukraine, so to say, on the offensive, uh, with Ukraine um, apparently conducting operations that, um, how should I put it, do not have the overall consent of the um, United States or of the West. Remember the assassination of um, Mrs. Dugina, um, attacks on Sevastopol, on Crimea. Um, so now we are entering the very, I think, dangerous and delicate phase of what could be defined as a position of strength for Ukraine um, to be ready to start talking. Um, might there be a point where the interests of the United States or the interests of the West and the legitimate interests of Ukraine might divide, um, might not be the same um, anymore? And, um, and how and where to proceed um, uh, from there? Um, so I think this is, um, now really delicate phase we, we are entering and we also always have to bear in mind um, uh, we deal do we want it or not but we deal with a nuclear power and the president um, blackmailing um, with his nuclear weapons well and that leads to i think the big question that that many of our viewers have which is how concerned are you that nuclear weapons might actually be used Is it posturing or is there is there a real is there a real risk? So um, Vladimir Putin is a master, as is the Kremlin apparatus, at pushing out messages to rattle us and to you know foment discussion. And over the last, I've lost track of time, five to six weeks, the Russians have used the specter of some form of nuclear use in Ukraine to rattle people, to make people worried about where this could all end up or what might happen if Ukraine did X or Ukraine did Y. It has uh, to be taken seriously because nuclear weapons are not a trivial issue. And even if the probability remains low, you don't want to leave such threats unaddressed. Um, and then it all fits into a pattern of trial and error. And the Russians have been hoping that plan A, plan B, C, D, et cetera, will cause the Western coalition to crack, will cause Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian morale or determination to uh, diminish, and will cause public opinion 
in the Western countries that are supporting Ukraine to demand a change. And so you've seen the pressure on Germany and other European countries by cutting off natural gas. Um, and um, Katya is closer to it. She can tell us whether she sees any indication that German support for Ukraine is now less solid. Um, but the Russians will keep pushing and they are masters of absorbing punishment. And that is one of their big claims to fame is seeing off Hitler, seeing off Napoleon in the past by basically saying you can't um, you can't push us and expect us to surrender because we're made of something different. We're Russian. And that's that's the challenge uh, that we're all going to be facing, which is a Russia which doesn't relent and basically is able to absorb blow after blow um, and shrug it off. I think it's really the, the biggest challenge. You deal with a nuclear superpower, um, a president who cannot afford to lose because this will be his end and the end of his system. Um, you deal with a president who apparently um, uses the threat of the use of a tactical nuclear weapon. We don't talk strategic nuclear weapons, but tactical uh, ones. Um, uh, even more often, so the, 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 the more pressure is on him and on the system, the more often he uses it. So he, whether we like it or not, he is exercising nuclear blackmailing. Um, and the, the challenge for us in the West is not to give in to this blackmailing and at the same time be very well aware of the risk of escalation. Um, so this might be a reason, it might be a reason why um, the West did not deliver on uh, modern Western tanks for Ukraine mm -hmm. so far, or on airplanes, uh, fighter jets um, uh, so far. Um, this might be a reason why um, Jake Sullivan went, went public with the notion that he spoke to um, the Russian leadership um, about the risk of a nuclear um, war, of a nuclear escalation. Um, and this might be the reason why Bill Burns just met with his counterpart Narishkin, apparently um, talking about the um, risk of a nuclear escalation. Um, so I would not say it's only, you know, it's only posturing and, you know, he kind of throws around, throws around with these words um, and will not deliver, so say, on them. I mm -hmm. would not be sure. And um, apparently the US administration isn't sure either. You've you've both written about Putin. Um, I mean, Katya, you've written a couple books about, about Russia, including mm -hmm. one titled Putin's World, The New Russia, Ukraine and the West. And Andrew, you have a, a graphic novel biography coming out, um, I guess, this month called Accidental Czar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. What makes him tick? I mean, what as Putin watchers, what what should we know about him? Andrew, you go first. <laughs> oh, it's, it's a long answer. You you sure? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, thanks for the plug for my book, which came out last week, and I'm I'm excited about uh, trying this unusual approach of having a graphic novel for someone who writes policy papers for a living. It's a, it's a very different um, technique. Um, three big points about what makes Putin tick. One, the issue that has been paramount throughout his uh, time in office has been the security of his regime and keeping that regime intact. And that fear of overthrow, I think, is is never far from his mind. And that's a big part of what explains his handling of all forms of political opposition, as well as keeping the Russian elite um, on his side. And there's been 
going back to the overthrow of Slobodan Milosevic in 2000, and then the wave of uh, what are called color revolutions and the Arab Spring and things like that, especially what happened in Ukraine. There's always been this fear that the ultimate goal of US policy is regime change. That's part one. Part two is the notion that Russia has to have a strong state. And if there's one cardinal principle to Putin's view of how he rules, it's that the interests of the state should always take precedence. And so the rule of law, the rules of the individual, the role of the individual, all of that is secondary and that having a strong centralized authority is essential for controlling uh, a country as big as, as Russia is. And then lastly, is this allergic and grievance-laden view of the United States and a, a desire which Russia has you know, made significant progress in achieving over the last decade of chipping away of you at U.S. leadership of the global system and trying to promote a world that would be in the Russian terminology multipolar, where the U.S. doesn't dominate and doesn't play the leading role. And Russia made a lot of gains in both discrediting U.S. leadership of trying to ride the coattails of a rising China. Um, the problem now is, is that Russia may have accomplished uh, or tried to take credit for bigger processes that are underway in the world that Russia doesn't really have authorship over. And as Russia becomes more isolated, weaker, and somewhat poor as a result of this war, it's not totally clear where Russia fits into that new constellation. Putin became convinced at some point, and I think it's part so say, of his political identity. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, mm -hmm. and I don't read you know, his soul, um, other than a certain US president at, um, at a certain time. Um, but part of his political identity became the notion of revenge, revenge for the humiliation um, of Russia um, after the fall of um, the Soviet Union, um, revenge um, towards the, the, the West, um, especially towards the United States, and, and to build Russia as a great power again with, with all means possible, be it war, um, be it economic pressure, be it disinformation, um, be it mingling in elections in the United States, and be it um, on a very on on making politics on a very personal uh, level, like he did for many years with uh, German Chancellor um, Gerhard Schröder. One of our so said biggest mistakes when it comes to Germany's policy towards. Um, Russia. Um, so re-establishing Russia as a great power, almost like not even in the 19th, but like in the 18th century. Um, so this became so it's a part of his political identity. And even more so, um, it, the, the, it, it's added with notions of Russian ethnicity, so the security of the Russian people to bring them back into the motherland and it's added with the notion of so-called true orthodox conservative family oriented um, patriotic um, values and um, apparently he sees all this incorporated in a Russia he wants to build. Um, the tragedy, one might say, um, is that this um, great Russia um, is about to lose everything mm -hmm. um, with this war in, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, against Ukraine. It's not a war in Ukraine. It's, it's first and foremost a war against um, Ukraine. Um, and I'm wondering whether there will be, you know, the big um, uh, books be written about him and, um, um, and pictures being painted um, 
of him when at some point he leaves his, his um, post. So, so you know, related to these questions around around isolation um, for for Russia in the the global community, I mean, th there was some you know interest attention being played to to whether or not Putin would actually show up in Bali for the G twenty summit. Um, it's fairly clear at this point mm -hmm. that he's not going to be there. Um, does this does this sort of isolate him even more? Um, can you talk a little bit about what his presence there or lack of his presence there would have or could have um, could have contributed to in terms of, of conversations, discussions? I have just two, two uh, thoughts. Um, on the one hand, um, he um, and or the people around him um, certainly underestimated the unity of the West uh, when it comes to his war against uh, Ukraine. On the other hand, it's not that the whole world is united against Russia. Um, so you look at the global south, um, many countries who regard this as a regional war and who want this war to be over um, because the fallout in economical terms, food crisis and so on is evident. Um, so he is russia is not as isolated as it might look like from washington or um, berlin but why let him be humiliated at the g20 uh, summit where all the other leaders would walk out if he appears on stage so mm -hmm. why should he do it it's not for him so it's not worth it i wouldn't um disagree with anything Katya just said. The challenge for the United States and the Europeans is the global South, for the most part, is not interested in embracing the policy of sanctions and isolation against Russia and has other more pressing issues and elements that they want to pursue with the United States and Europe than standing in solidarity with Ukraine. Um, if the last nine months have taught us anything it's that there's a kind of inverse relationship between the unity within the g7 or useu uh construct and the disunity on ukraine inside the g20 and um people will dissociate themselves for example with russian nuclear blackmail we saw that in the readout of president biden's meeting uh with xi jinping that came out about an hour ago um where the Chinese leader said that he, you know, according to Joe Biden's uh, readout, doesn't support making nuclear threats in Ukraine. But to expect that people will put Russia in a global penalty box and stop dealing with it is probably um, just a bridge too far. And the, the challenge will be not to expect or force countries um, to accept an either-or dynamic. And if we if the United States or other uh, governments push too hard, we're going to end up in a situation where countries are squishy and continue to sit on the fence. And, you know, to my mind, it's fine to try to do things at times, like we have these votes in the UN General Assembly, and countries, you know, most recently did express their distaste for Russia's attempt to annex territory in a series of sham referenda. Um, but we shouldn't overdo it and expect that it matters. What really matters here is going to be what happens on the battlefield and our own resilience and our staying power to help Ukraine during this brutal war. Um, it won't be the number of, of you know, smaller countries that right. don't have you know, huge global influence sounding off and issuing you know, mean tweets about, about Russian aggression. Like that, that's not gonna win this war. Both of you seem to think that this this conflict um, will is likely to continue for months, if not years. And so I'd be be very curious to know um, if you think uh, that there might be some sort of a diplomatic solution, what that could look like, um, or if there's anything at all that could could stop the war. So difficult. To, you know, to have at least, you know, 
layer of uh, hope for the nearer future. Um, the best, the, really the best one could hope for at this time um, might be um, a ceasefire, but even this seems very, very difficult, um, at least in my eyes, to achieve because there is complete distrust, not only from the Ukrainian side, but also uh, from um, the side of Western countries when it comes to um, dealing with uh, Russia, with the president and his um, people. Um, and um, you, I mean, Ukrainian government has, you know, it has legitimate interests to keep on fighting, certainly. Um, I don't know how long they can take it as well. Uh, we don't know the numbers of uh, victims. Uh, we can rely only on American figures um, uh, when it comes to this. Um, and we hear the number of 100,000 soldiers dead or wounded also on the Ukrainian side. So the toll is so, so, so heavy um, that this might at some point lead to talks. But um, yeah, as you can hear, I'm quite um, pessimistic. Mm -hmm. I'm more optimistic than I used to be about a resilience in the Western countries when it comes at least to survive this winter <laughs> um, and rising energy costs and, um, um, and problems and economical problems. Um, but also this is far from over. We don't know what will happen next fall or uh, next winter when we are in a recession and prices will be uh, maybe even higher. So it ain't over yet. Oh. Mm -hmm. I, I recall working on the Balkans wars and those dragged on and they only ended when the U.S. and NATO intervened. And I believe Joe Biden is serious when he says that one of his core principles here is that the U.S. should not go to war in Ukraine and should not find itself in a direct military confrontation with Russia, given the dangers that such a direct confrontation would present. Um, and that is unsatisfying to people who would like the war to end tomorrow. Um, but it is, you know, still going to be the case that the people of Ukraine, having suffered these horrible quasi-genocidal onslaughts by the Russians and unbelievable criminality and atrocities, um, are not going to give up. And people in the West sitting in our comfortable settings should not lose sight of what's at stake. And we shouldn't encourage or uh, fool ourselves into believing um, that it's really just, you know, you know, let's just be reasonable here and let's, you know, try to buy off Mr. Putin. Um, he has proven himself to have a view of Ukraine that is absolutely inimical to the state system that has been in place for the past hundred years or so and believes that you know, might makes right and that invading countries and taking them over is an okay way to run his foreign policy. Um, and, you know, we all should shudder at the idea of what encouraging someone like Putin will produce in other parts of the world. Um, and we shouldn't, we just shouldn't be naive about any of that. Indeed. I mean, I think uh, I couldn't agree with you more that there is a lot at stake um, and that it's it's much more than the future of Ukraine. Um, I guess what, what concerns me a little bit is that the longer the war drags on, I feel like um, it gets pushed to the back burner, people aren't as focused on it, um, it ceases to have quite as much uh, awareness. And while um, you, know, you, Katya, and, and I think you, Andrew, as well, pointed out that there was a very strong Western resolve initially after the, the invasion in February, um, I, I worry about how long this, this resolve will hold, um, both domestically in countries like Germany, where um, public opinion polls have, have shown support for supporting Ukraine, but as things get difficult, um, how, how long will that hold domestically, but then also the international community? We're seeing some, you know, some cracks uh, in, in the shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder stance that the West has taken. 
So undoubtedly, um, we will be we will be watching what goes on in Ukraine for for months to come. Um, this is going to continue to be a very important issue. Um, but I'd really like to thank both of you for for taking the time to share some of your thoughts with us today. And uh, hopefully we can have you back again in the future as we continue to to watch what's going on in Ukraine. Um, so on, on behalf of both the American Council on Germany and the Tennessee World Affairs Council, I want to thank both of you for, for taking the time. And I'd like to thank our viewers for, for tuning in and for posing some great questions along the way. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Steve. Thanks. Take care. Have a good afternoon. Thank you.